are, because I know I reference some things sometimes. People are like, what is he talking about? So how many of you guys have never in your life used an emoji? Texting, any of that. You're like, never, ever. Yep. You're holding out. I held out a long time. How many of you guys use them all the time? You have like a go-to emoji. Like, what's the go-to? The thumbs up? Yeah. I use that with Steph a lot. It's better than K. <laughs> Steph. The cry laughing. Was that yours, Amanda? Tyler? Boop. Which I like did a lot of research for this. It says it's poop everywhere, but but Nate was saying that's chocolate ice cream, which I could see and it would make a little more sense. But it, everybody says it's poop. Anyways, Canada uses it more than any other nation. There's a random fact about emojis. But some of them are ridiculously random. If you're talking, like, what are, what are they even talking about? This is the emoji right there. Giant, plush, and on Steph's head because she's adorable. So that is what it looks like when it's plush. If we were still youth pastors, I can guarantee that would be in our house. But kind of just like, you know, hosting life groups now, let's not have a giant poo in the middle of our floor. So, but I avoided emojis for years. Even as a youth pastor, the, the students would be like, you're so boring. I'm like, I might be boring, but I'm also a grown man. And uh, I'm also an English major. So when I have emotions, I use my words. So I held out for a long time. Like, this can't be legit communication. But there's all kinds of random stuff. This, this couple in New York pledged for 30 days to just text in emoticons. Weirdos. There's, uh, there were two guys that were arrested because they threatened another man who they had history with with emojis. I don't know, probably the gun, right? Probably gun to a head. I don't know, but they got arrested because that is apparently in the eyes of the law, legit communication. But I don't think I've ever gone through the whole smorgasbord of selection of emojis and looked at every single one. So I would, you know, be in conversation mostly with Steph or a friend and just slide to one and say, oh, here's, here's what I want. So I found what had one finger up pointing what I thought to, you know, if somebody made a good point, like what he said, or, you know, pointing to different things. And I used it enough for weeks to where, you know how, like, when you first open it up, there's your most frequently used emojis. And then finally one day, I was going to use it, and I realized which finger was pointing up. And it wasn't pointing as much as it was flipping the bird. And I realized that many of my text conversations had fallen off after flipping someone the bird. I don't know how nobody ever said why or pointed it out. They're not real friends. A lot of them are college buddies, and they laugh when I actually mentioned it. And they're like, yeah, we know. We just laughed. But uh, so, yeah, you got to be careful. And some of these are, are they're not just hard to see. They're, they're kind of ambiguous. Like there's this one here, which I still don't know what it is or why it's on my phone. Oh, bring it back. What are the, the two women dancing with? Why do they have horns? Is that like a scene from Black Swan? I never saw that movie. <laughs> yeah, you don't know. It's weird. That looks like something out of the hallway in The Shining. And if you text me that at 2 a.m., I'll probably have nightmares. So don't ever send me that. I'll cry. But it's kind of like a, a Rorschach test, this, because different people see different things with this. It's back and forth. It's 50-50. A lot of official articles say this is two people giving each other a high five. Now, I, don't, I like to think it's not just because I'm a pastor that I think those are praying hands. Who, who thinks that those are praying hands? For instance, let's get Sherlock on it. If you high five somebody, there's going to be a thumb. It's not going to be two pinkies. Also, wearing the same blue shirt, long sleeved. And I like to think that your high fives aren't as spiritual as my prayers where you would have the sunburst <laughs> bursting forth. But I couldn't find any articles that said this is officially praying hands. A lot of them said this is officially high five, so 
we can debate that till the end of the night. But uh, Denise actually mentioned it before service when she found out I was talking about emojis, that they did release an emoji Bible. Believe it or not, the book was released on the online Apple, Apple bookstore. It contains more than 3,000 pages of smiling yellow faces, twinkling stars, and cartoon serpents. Angel emojis descend from the heavens, bush emojis burn, and ocean emojis are parted. All 66 glorious books, said the author, a self-described techie who requested anonymity because some circles, because people like to go there, have accused the project of being the satanic Illuminati agenda and the ushering in of the Antichrist. <laughs> people go there. The Bible is the most translated book in the world, so it was probably only a matter of time before the new online vernacular got its turn. But we're going to turn to the Bible right now because we're talking about emotions, feelings, and worship tonight. And we're going to work from Romans 12, verse 1. Whatever Bible you got, you can turn there. I'm going to pull it up on the screen in the New King James Version and the Message Version with the emoticon that I like to think is worshiping. Right? Those look like praise hands. Clap, clap, praise him. That's what I see when I, that's what I hear when I see that. But uh, Revelation, excuse me, not Revelation, Romans. Y'all like, Revelation's 12. Where are we going tonight? But Romans 12, 1, New King James Version says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Then I love the message version. I believe I've even shared it from the pulpit here over the past few weeks. It says, so here's what I want you to do, God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. And then lastly, because we mentioned the emoji Bible, they've got translators online. This is the message version in emoji. Here's what I want you to do. God helping you take your everyday ordinary life. You're sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life and place it before him as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. That's like if Paul texted the letter of Romans rather than using Tertius to write it down for him. It might have looked a little bit like that. But again, tonight we're going to work and speak on worship. But before I do that, can we pray? Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that that one verse can speak to us in a hundred different ways. God, year after year, every time we return to it, God, that it can speak new truth, God, that it speaks to our hearts, it speaks to our lives, and I thank you that your word is living and active, and I pray it would be that tonight. God, use my words as a pastor through your Holy Spirit to have an impact on hearts tonight, and everybody said amen. So if you're taking notes, you can simply put the title of the sermon is more than a feeling, and again, we're talking about emotions, that's why we hit on emoticons, we're talking about Worship And the point that I want to look at tonight, that I want to dial in tonight, look at from different angles, that if you're taking notes, you can put down, is, is simply this question. Is my worship a response or a resolution? Is my worship a response or a resolution? And neither are bad. Clearly, we just read in, in Romans 12, 1, that it's our reasonable response to worship God. It's our reasonable response. When somebody's done something for us, we're trained from when we're young, if our parents had any sense, to mind our P's and Q's, to say thank you when somebody does something for us. And sometimes I think I like to take it an extra mile and throw you two at the end. How many of you guys know that's a trap? <laughs> when you say you two, like somebody gives you your movie ticket, you're like, thanks. He says, enjoy the movie. Yeah, thanks, you too. And then you realize that was dumb. Or the, a waiter says, hey, here's your dinner. Enjoy your dinner. And you're like, yeah, thanks, you too. And then you're like, never mind, whatever. Or you get your boarding pass, get on a plane, enjoy your flight, thanks you too. Happy birthday, thanks you too. 
just to keep it simple, I've learned to just stick with thank you. It's much appreciated. Maybe I'll throw that on, but I've tried to drop the YouTube. It's been a booby trap too many times. But sometimes thank you is only the start. You know, when somebody does something amazing for Steph and I, sometimes a, a thank you is not enough. I send a thank you card, a thank you gift, go the extra mile. And when you realize the depth of what Jesus Christ has done for us, when you realize the length God went to to redeem us, you realize that it, it's, you owe him a little more than a thank you. Jesus gave his life. Our reasonable response, as it says in Romans 12:1, is to give him ours. This word to worship really means to be devoted to. Worship is more than just praising with words, as sincere as those words might be. It's more than just acknowledging God's greatness, as great as he is. To worship means to become devoted to God to the point where I live for him. And it's easy to make vows of devotion, cries of praise when you're on the proverbial mountaintop, when all is well, when you've got the warm fuzzies and the godly goosebumps, whatever else you want to call them, when you're, when you're doing well. But what about when you're in the valley? What about the day, the week, the month, the year when nothing seems to be going right? When your reasonable response seems like it's a four-letter word more than it is hallelujah or praise him. In those moments, what does your worship look like? Because the second thing I want to bring home tonight is that worship begins as a reasonable response. But it should mature into an unflinching resolution in the life of a believer. It begins as a reasonable response. That's a good thing. But it should mature to an unflinching resolution where I, I don't care what season I'm in, I'm going to worship God. I don't care what's going on in my life, I'm going to worship God. I don't care what so-and-so just said, I'm going to worship God. Worship is something we must do on purpose, not simply when feelings propel us. Worship should be in our DNA, a part of who we are because of who God is. And if it's not, it's why people live disconnected from worship, from worship gatherings, from churches. When it's not, it's why people can look for the perfect worship experience again and again until they finally give up. But there's a great quote by D.A. Carson. He says, you can't find excellent corporate worship until you stop trying to find excellent corporate worship and pursue God himself. And he says, you can't find excellent corporate worship until you stop trying to find excellent corporate worship and pursue God himself. Again, worship begins as a reasonable response. And that's a good thing. But it should mature into an unflinching resolution in the life of a believer. Worship is something we've got to do on purpose, not just when our feelings propel us into it or when we're pursuing a feeling that we want to attain. Case in point, you look at the life of Jacob. I'm going to turn to Genesis 28 verses 10 through 22. Jacob's ladder is what your heading might say, but it's Genesis 28, 10 through 22. It says, taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head to lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth, which its top reaching to heaven. And the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord. And he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. And when Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate 
of heaven. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the place Bethel, though the city used to be called Luz. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey, I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I will return safely to my father's house. Then the Lord will be my God. And this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. So God meets Jacob laying on this rock as a pillow. Never done that. I've slept on the floor plenty of times, but I've never had to do that. Somehow he even dreams and falls asleep and he encounters God. And he responds with worship. He makes this stone pillar, pours oil upon it. But his verbal response is essentially when you take out some of the, the thoughts is this. If God will be with me, then the Lord will be my God. Worship for Jacob at this point was a response, not yet a resolution. It was a weak, conditional, if-then reply to what God was going to do. He was in wait-and-see mode, looking for benefits up front before committing. Jacob's worship was backwards. It was broken. So he went through a season of testing and fixing before he encountered God in this way again. But how many approach Christianity and the worship of God in the same way? A benefit to be enjoyed rather than a commitment to make to God with your life. It's what could be called a contract faith. As long as God treats me right, nothing ever goes wrong, then I believe in him and I worship him. But when that's our stance, we become like Jacob. His worship was his response, but it wasn't yet a resolution. You know, God told Jacob, I'll never leave you. Jesus told us, I'll never leave you or forsake you. But what he didn't say was, I'll always feel present. Everything will always be hunky-dory. It's always going to be a, a, a constant mountaintop experience. He actually says, you will have trouble. The question is, what will our worship look like then when we're in the valley? And at, at risk of being that weird pastor, the nerdy pastor that quotes Obi-Wan Kenobi two weeks in a row, uh, he tells Luke in A New Hope, trust your feelings, right? It's one of the famous lines probably somewhere behind I am your father in the Star Wars series. Trust your feelings, Luke. Obi-Wan probably had a mean emoji game when he was texting people all his, all his feels. Because he said, trust your feelings. And you know what? That's the doctrine of our culture. Where God's prescriptions we see again and again are being replaced by preferences. If it feels good, do it. It's the mantra of our culture. And we see again and again the fruit of what Jeremiah says in chapter 17, verse 9, where he says, The human heart is the most deceitful of all things. And desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? So to trust your feelings, to follow your heart, to do whatever makes you happy, that is a booby trap that will derail your destiny. God's given us a moral compass, and when we toss that aside, we ditch that for our feelings, we end up getting lost. And I don't think any of us are going to follow our feelings tonight, next week, next year, or any point in our life and do a life of debauchery, right? God willing. But I would say that it can hinder our worship. Because if your worship is based on a feeling, if your worship is based on feelings, your worship will always be fleeting. If it's based on a pursuit of a feeling or a feeling you're feeling in the moment and not a resolution, then it will always be fleeting. And here's the thing. I don't want you to think, oh, feelings are bad. No, feelings are good. Emotions are good. A life without emotion would be a drudgery. It would be empty. God made them to be felt and enjoyed. Matter of fact, Jesus said in John 15, I give you these commands. I told you these things so that you can be filled with joy. Our pursuit of God, our following after him should be filled with emotion 
and feeling. We should have all the feels. You look at the Gospels, Jesus experienced a whole gamut of emotions. Some of you just looked at me weird. Feels is short for feelings. I'm learning to describe myself. It's used when you have an intense emotional response. You say, I have all the feels. If you're lazy and you don't want to use all your words like an English major, you say, I have all the feels. Anyways, we should have all the feels. The whole gamut of emotion because God gave us emotion and it's good. But God's truth should be what informs our faith. Not feelings. Feelings shouldn't inform our faith. It should be fruit that comes from our faith. And what you do with your feelings, feels, is important. To have our emotions rightly ordered is to have them appropriately directed toward the right objects. As Augustine would say, love first things most. Or as you might have heard somebody say before, when you let a good thing become the main thing, it becomes a bad thing. Basing your worship on the presence of a feeling or the pursuit of a feeling is like basing the foundation of your home on shifting sands. Because feelings come, feelings go. Because feelings are based on circumstance. And one day circumstances might be good, the next day they might not be good. It's how you end up with moody Christians, the, the paradox that is a moody Christian. Feelings are meant to be felt, not followed. I don't remember who told me that first. I don't know who to attribute that quote to. I've heard it a hundred times and it's true. Feelings are me meant to be felt, not followed. And if your goal in following, if your goal in pursuing is feelings as an end in themselves and not faith in spite of feelings, you're still in the adolescence of your spiritual walk. I hear all the time, well, I didn't worship because I wasn't feeling it. At some point in your life, you have to graduate from that. At some point in your life, you have to graduate from what's a reasonable response into an unflinching resolution that no matter the season, no matter how I feel in the moment, I'm going to worship. When you look at Jacob's if-then proposition in Genesis 28, and then fast forward to Genesis 32 where he encounters God again. Jacob's come a long way, over a decade of life. And through self-sufficiency, through a, a hefty amount of resolve with people, even sometimes swindling people, he's come a long way. Worked 14 years to obtain his, his wife Rachel's hand in marriage, even when he was double-crossed and dealt with this honestly. He produced amazing flocks. By now, in Genesis 32, he's incredibly wealthy because he worked with resolve. And still, in Genesis 32, he finds his brother Esau approaching him. And all of it could go up in flames, as far as he knows. Because he stole his brother's birthright a few chapters back. And his brother still had reason to want him dead. So Jacob was a broken man. Every bone of self-sufficiency has been broken. But he realized in this moment... The night before meeting Esau, as he prayed to God, he realized that God's promise had been fulfilled. He says in Genesis 32.10, I'm not worthy of your unfailing love and faithfulness you've shown me. He realized that Jesus said he was never going to leave, and he never did. Even through the hard seasons of being swindled, even through the hard seasons of working 14 years for Rachel's hand. And what does he do? When God appears to him again and engages him, he grapples. The Bible says wrestles with him. Even in the most terrifying night of his life, he said, I'm going to cling to God. I'm going to hold tight to God. And let's be serious. This wasn't like a physical victory. Commentators, you study the Bible, he's probably 80 or 90 years old. All of a sudden, him throwing out his hip, it makes a little more sense, right? Like, this is an old man. It wasn't a, a physical victory. Who's going to physically out-wrestle God? But his victory was in graduating from worship that was based on a response to a worship that was a resolution. He said, I will not let go until you bless me. Not if you bless me, I'll stay engaged. 
But even on my darkest night, I'm clinging to you. It was the cry of, that we see Job say, where though he slay me, I'll hope in him. It's the cry of resolve from David that said, when I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. It's the cry of resolution from Habakkuk in chapter 13, verses 17 and 18, where he says, though the fig tree should not blossom, there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail, and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. See, Jacob had learned that God was unfailing and faithful. He recognized that. He says it with his own lips, and he was basing his faith on that fact. You know, I, I'm working my way through a lot of C.S. Lewis books because I realize we quote them all the time. I'm 10 years following Christ. And I'd only read Mere Christianity. So I'm like, let me read some of the other books. So I worked through Great Divorce. I think I referenced that. Read through Screw Tape Letters. And I'm working again through Mere Christianity. And he has a couple chapters on faith. And I, I want to read a bit of his thoughts on faith. Because it ties directly into what we're talking about. And C.S. Lewis says, faith, in the sense in which I am here using the word, is the art of holding on to things your reason has once accepted in spite of your changing moods. For moods will change whatever view your reason takes. I know that by experience. Now that I am a Christian, I do have moods in which the whole thing looks very improbable. But when I was an atheist, I had moods in which Christianity looked terribly probable. This rebellion of your moods against your real self is going to come anyway. That is why faith is such a necessary virtue. Unless you teach your moods where to get off, you can never be either a sound Christian or even a sound atheist but just a creature dithering to and fro with its beliefs really dependent on the weather and the state of its digestion. Consequently, one must train the habit of faith. And the first step is to recognize the fact that your moods change. The next is to make sure that if you have once accepted Christianity, then some of its main doctrines shall be deliberately held before your mind for some time every day. That is why daily prayers and religious readings and church going are necessary parts of the Christian life. We have to be continually reminded of what we believe. Neither this belief nor any other will automatically remain alive in the mind. It must be fed. And as a matter of fact, if you examined 100 people who have lost their faith in Christianity, I wonder how many of them would turn out to have been reasoned out of it by honest argument. Do not most people simply drift away. I've seen his thoughts here illustrated before and it looks a little bit like this. I've seen people put it together like a train where facts are the locomotive, the, they're the front, and then the feelings are the caboose. Because our faith, when you look at faith in the middle, it's tied to facts and it's tied to feelings. Or as C.S. Lewis puts it, moods and doctrines. Again, your feelings affect your faith. Your faith affects your feelings. You can't separate them. They're intertwined and God made it that way. But we can't let our feelings lead our faith. I've seen... Again, these three lined up like a train, and, and, and feelings should be the, the caboose. Because feelings, again, they're fleeting. Our faith needs to be led by facts. Who God is, what he's done for us, who we are in Jesus Christ. Some of us need to stop consulting our feelings and start consulting the facts when we're considering whether we're going to worship. Because, we'll, again, as C.S. Lewis says, prayer, reading, church going. Those are reasons those are core because you got to keep the facts at the forefront of your mind. Don't consult 
changing circumstances or feelings based on changing circumstances. Consult the fact that we serve an unchanging God who's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Question we should ask is, is my worship based on how I feel or a God who never fails? Because, again, if your worship is based on feelings, your worship will stay fleeting, temporary. But if your worship is based on a God who never fails, it will never fail. Because you can resolve to worship in any season because God is faithful in every season. Come on, you can resolve to worship in any season because God is faithful in every season. You feel troubled, pray, petition God, but also worship. Because right feelings follow right actions. Right feelings follow right actions. Perspective will follow your praise. Let your feelings respond to your faith, not the other way around. Because right feelings follow right actions. Jesus said to the woman at the well, if you knew who you were talking to, you would ask. If we truly grasp who we talk to, who we address, when we worship, you would, you would worship, regardless of feeling. Because you look at worship from another angle. Worship is ultimately an expression of love, love for God. That's why you have to graduate from the warm fuzzies to a resolved focus, because that's what lasting love does. Anybody who's been married for any amount of time, when you first get married, you're just walking around a natural high. Anytime you're in the room with your spouse, you're like, oh, this is amazing. Then you get a few years in, and love has to become a resolution. It has to become a, a decision. It sounds so unromantic, but it's the truth. The way you truly, freely love and worship is to link those feelings to a resolution, a vow. That's why you make a, a wedding vow, and we think the opposite. That to love freely, that I'm not going to make a vow, I'm not going to make any commitment, but then really your love is pawned to outside forces, circumstance, what your spouse looks like, any of that. What happens to your marriage, any of that. But when you have a commitment and a vow, you're free to love. You're free to worship. Again, God created feelings and emotions. Without emotions, marriage would be boring. <laughs> Without emotion, worship would be a drudgery. But to make worship about how we feel, and not about the unchanging God we worship. That's a mockery. Worship without feeling would be a drudgery. But to make it all about feelings and not about God, that's a mockery. When feelings aren't there, let facts inform your faith. And let your faith inform your feelings. Faith ultimately is believing in what you don't see. So fact-filled faith, faith-filled worship prompts us to praise God even when we're not feeling it. Even when he's unfelt. Why? Because we know who he is. Because we know what he's done for us. And our reasonable response, as it says in Romans 12.1, is to respond in worship. Mature faith takes what was a reasonable response and ter turns it into a resolution in every season. It's not a matter of response to what we're feeling in the moment. If our worship is based on feelings, it will always be fleeting. It's a matter of resolve. David says in Psalm 42, he's going through a mess. We're going to hit on that at the end. But he says, yet I will praise him. That's a resolution. It's not based on circumstance because his circumstance was crap. This dude was running for his life, hiding out in caves. But David would say, yet I will praise him. And again, like Jacob, even if I'm in my darkest night, I'm not letting go. I love that. Well, I don't love that his hip was, was hurt because that would just be mean. But I love that it was his hip because that affected how he moved. And just the, the second sub point or point under the main point would be, is my worship tied to a moment? Or a movement. The message version, again, of Romans 12.1 says, so here's what I want you to do. God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. 
Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. You know, King Saul was the first king of God's people, handpicked by his prophet, Samuel. He had the raw material, but he lacked a true heart of worship. You read through 1 Samuel, there were spurts of dedication, spurts of worship, genuine worship too, prophesying, running and singing with his, his buddies who were all filled with the Spirit, but it was all bursts, short bursts, moments. You know, the devil is the master of the exception. He's the master of putting immense weight on one moment. There's two sides to that coin. The first is one mistake is enough to disqualify you. Oh, you made that mistake? You stumbled? You should quit? You should throw in the towel? God's grace has run out. He loves to put so much weight on that one moment. The other side of that coin is one good act makes you okay. One good session of worship for 30 minutes, you're good for the week. He loves when worship becomes a checklist item. Church becomes a get in, get out, get home, and get back to whatever you were doing before you went to worship event. He loves when worship puts weight on a moment and not momentum that will push us into transformation, a life of deeper obedience, a, a life that follows Christ more closely. If you look at 1 Samuel 13 through 15, Saul's looking to win a battle against the Philistines, like his arch nemesis who he's battling again and again throughout 1 Samuel. But twice we see the enemy, the devil, again, win battles over his worship. The first instance is in 1 Samuel 13, 8 through 14. Before the battle even begins, he's got instructions. Wait till Samuel gets there so he can do the offering, bless the troops, and then head out. Samuel takes a little longer than he was supposed to, so Saul sees some troops leaving. And he says, hey, I'm just going to fire this thing up myself. Just as a thing to do. <laughs> I don't know what his feelings were. Was he feeling fear, inadequacy, frustration, anger that Samuel wasn't there? But when rebuked, he simply replied, I felt compelled to offer it. His feeling in the moment was it, it was something that I had to do. What was meant to become spiritual had become a ritual, a means to an end, a moment to get out of the way before moving on to the important stuff. There was no awe, certainly no fear of God. There was no pausing to think about God's greatness or pausing to think about his own brokenness. You know, how often do I feel compelled to go to church and worship so I can check it off before getting back to all the other stuff. <laughs> when does my worship lack awe? When does it lack the fear of God? When does it look more like a ritual than anything remotely spiritual? You know, Saul eventually gets to the important stuff after he's rebuked. And as he's winning, he makes this foolish command that, that no man would eat until the enemy was completely wiped out. So at the end of this day, of course, everyone's exhausted and starving. So they come across the spoils of the enemy, this cattle, sheep, goats, and they just start tearing into it and eating it raw. Not only is that gross, <laughs> that went against God's explicit commands in the Old Testament. So Saul says, hey, hey, pause. <laughs> he builds an altar to the Lord, again, as a means to an end, as a place to drain the blood before they ate the meat. And what it says of that altar in 1 Samuel 15, 35 is significant. It says, then Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first of the altars he built to the Lord. Here's Saul, long established as king, called and blessed by God as an individual to lead a nation under God. And the first time he ever builds an altar is as a last resort. Out of necessity, not worship. What's meant to be deeply spiritual became just, just another ritual, something to get out of the way. You know, advice, I've shared it here from the pulpit, advice somebody gave me the life 
the night I gave my life to Christ as a 21-year-old, a senior at William & Mary, I was at the altar, and he came up behind me. I don't even know who he was because I didn't turn around. He said, build yourself an altar. Build yourself an altar. Don't let your worship be tied to the front of a sanctuary. Don't let your worship be tied to a pew in a sanctuary. Don't let it be tied to a weekend service. Let it move with you and propel your faith and move you into life transformation. Not just a moment, but movement into a deeper walk with God. Take your worship with you. At least that's what I got from it. I don't know what y'all got from it. (laughs) But worship doesn't just provide a moment of spiritual ecstasy, warm fuzzies, or again, godly goosebumps. It equips me to move forward in faith. Worship isn't a moment to retreat from life. It's bringing the stuff of life, the stuff of our world, the harassing problems, the raw emotions, the significant conflicts, and asking for a new perspective and a new energy to take back to the world as we live and move in obedience. That's why a song like God, I Look to You is so powerful. Because I'm saying, hey, I'm shifting my perspective. I'm shifting my focus to you, who you are. That's unchanging. It's a fact. And I'm going to let that inform my faith. I'm going to let that inform my feelings. You know, the lesson that we learn from Saul's life that's quoted again in the New Testament by Jesus himself is that God desires obedience over sacrifice. That obedience is better than sacrifice. That walking in obedience, moving forward into deeper obedience and life transformation, it's supremely more valuable than some moment of sacrifice. Saul worshiped in a moment as a means to an end again and again, but he never walked in consistent obedience. We see again and again deliberately disobeying. So God replaced him with David. David's worship wasn't about a moment. And certainly David had moments where he stumbled, moments where he failed, but his worship moved him to a life of obedience. Was he perfect? Again, no. Another sermon for another time, but that whole Chapter, chapters about Bathsheba and all, broke all ten commandments within a couple chapters of each other. But his moments of stumbling, it didn't derail his moving forward in worship and obedience. He repented. He reflected on who God was. He didn't consult his feelings of shame, but he consulted the facts of who God is, and he was able to move forward in worship and obedience. He didn't let a moment disqualify him. David, he also didn't live a life of denial. Again, he was anointed at a very young age, and for years and years, he didn't see that come to fulfillment. He was actually running from Saul, the king, hiding for his life, scared for his life. And many of the Psalms come from these chapters in his life. And if you turn to Psalm 42, he asked this question, why, my soul, are you so downcast? It's also refreshing about the Psalms. You realize some of these feelings that you wish you didn't have? Guess what? Other people struggle with them too. Other people struggle with them. Sadness. In Psalm 42, he says, my soul is downcast. He says, tears have been my food. Suffering, he says, my bones suffer agony. My foes taunt me. Other Psalms, you see straight anger. They're called Psalms of imprecation, where he's like, God, murk these people. Take them out, their whole families. It's just crazy. But he takes his anger not directed at them, but he takes it to God. He's saying, I need to connect these feelings I have, anger, suffering, sadness. I need to connect them to who God is. And you see him do that in the Psalms. And when he does that, his psalms almost always end with praise. You know, I don't know how your life started, but the psalms show us that they don't have to end that way. I don't know how your day started. I don't know how your attitude was at the beginning of the day, but your day doesn't have to end in the same way. David says, in spite of all this I feel, yet I will praise him. That wasn't a response. That was a resolution in his heart based on who God was. And the feelings of worship, they followed. So the question for us tonight is, what's worship mean to you? Is it a moment on a weekend that checks a box? Is it a routine? Is it the fruit of a feeling or the pursuit of a feeling? When you feel down, I'm going to go into worship until I feel happy or 
You know, there are moments where you get goosebumps. Again, those are good things, but that's not what worship is all about. Worship is about a resolution that no matter what season, whatever, what my, my week was like, no matter what my last night was like, I'm going to step into a moment of prayer. I'm going to step into a moment of worship. Have I graduated to re- a resolve, a resolution to worship God in every season, to take no weeks and no days off? Again, Jesus said, I'll never leave nor forsake you, but he also said you will have trouble. If I could have the worship team come up, we're going to get ready to close, but that song we sang tonight, I believe in you, I believe in you, you're the God of miracles. It's written by a guy, Chris Kilala. I had to look up how to say his name after about 10 years. I call him Chris Quesadilla, Chris Koala, whatever. Chris Kilala. Jesus Culture, the, the male vocalist for Jesus Culture, he wrote this song, and this is what he wrote about that song. He said, miracles is a song about choosing to believe the truth that God is who he says he is. In December of 2014, my wife and I lost our baby boy, Jethro Dylan Kilala. As my wife labored in the hospital room, we were praying and believing God for God to do a miracle. He did not see our son Jethro come back to life, and as we held him in our arms, we had a choice. To believe God is good all the time and no matter the outcome, he is and always will be the God of miracles. Oftentimes as believers, we allow our circumstances to change our perceptions of God. The truth is that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. The journey of faith is full of mystery. My wife and I could be stuck going around in circles asking God why we didn't see the miracle we had hoped for. Instead of doubting God in the face of contrary circumstances, we chose to move towards him, to trust him, and to hold on to him even more tightly. If you need a miracle in your life, don't lose hope. Continue to believe and have faith to see impossibilities bow at his name. Our God is the God of miracles. Come on, that's such a powerful story. I heard him explain elsewhere in a video that in that moment when that happened, he could have just dwelled in his flood of feelings, but there was something powerful about reminding himself the fact of who God was, reminding himself the fact of who he is in Christ, that God is still good no matter the circumstance. You know, the other song we sang, Good, Good Father, it's meaningful to me. I remember when I first heard the House Fires version. Yes, it's not by Chris Tomlin. The House Fires version, I would listen to it again and again. And it was, I just loved the melody. I loved the song. I loved the song writing. But, you know, I've always dreamt how awesome it'll be to have a, a kid, like a mini-me. My flesh and blood, you know, running around on the carpet. You know, as a teenager, I was already thinking, man, that'd be crazy. Like, that's a mini version of me. My flesh and blood acting nuts, right? It just blew my mind. I've always looked forward to that. I've always looked forward to being a father, having a family. And Steph shared our story on Mother's Day. We haven't been able to get pregnant. We're in the process of adopting. But I remember listening to this song in the car, driving down 64. And God challenged me and he said, if, if you never have a child that could call you a good father, will you still call me a good father? <laughs> there was a lot of this in the car. <laughs> and that song's powerful to me. I couldn't sing it. We tried to do it at RC. <laughs> I broke down, had to like explain to the kids what was going on, and that song's powerful to me. Because we don't, we don't know if we'll ever have, you know, a, a son that's my flesh and blood. You know, we're going to adopt a child who's going to be able to call me a good father, but that song reminds me, you know, the fact of who God is. When I'm feeling self-pity, feeling down, I can listen to that song and, and say, you know what, God, you are a good father. You are perfect in all of your ways. 
and my faith's not going anywhere. Those are facts that I can walk in. And you know what? Those feelings follow that. And when I sing that song and when I worship it with it, worship with that song, come on, right feelings follow right actions. And there's hope again. There's joy again. You know, that, that, I love that song. But what, what is that for you tonight? Where do you need the reminder that God is a good father? Where do you need that reminder that despite circumstance, no matter what you're feeling, he's still good in every season. He's still worthy of praise and worship in every season. I don't know what the miracle is for you. That, that song, Miracles, is so powerful because there's so many different miracles people need. It might be physical. It might be spiritual. The greatest miracle we'll ever see is salvation. Maybe that's you tonight. You need to step into a relationship with God for the first time. Maybe the, the miracle is emotional. You know, being able to forgive somebody truly sometimes takes nothing short of the grace of God or to accept forgiveness. Maybe that's you tonight. I don't know what miracle you need, but come on, as we worship, go back into this song, God, I look to you. Let's truly look to God. Let's truly look to who he is, who we are in him, how that should inform our lives, how that should inform our worship. So come on, if we could stand in this moment, we're going to go back into worship. Wendy's going to lead us in this song. God, we worship you tonight.
thank you for the God, we thank you for the gift of your son. God, that it's our reasonable response in every moment to worship you, in every season to praise you. Because what Jesus did never changed. No matter what the enemy would like us to think about what we did in a moment, Lord God, your grace never fails. Your grace never runs out. What if we need fresh repentance to seek your face again tonight? We, we do that, God. But God, I thank you that we can sing a chorus like this, that in any season, you're our strength, you're our shield, and God, that those facts can inform our faith. I love that in Ephesians 6, Paul calls it the shield of faith. That in any season, as David wrote in the Psalms, all these things coming at him, but he had that shield of faith that was based on the fact of who God was. And he could say, yet I will praise him. So God, I don't know what each person is walking through tonight. I don't know what miracle they need tonight, God, but I pray that we will worship you. That comes from a healthy, unflinching resolve. Got a maturity of faith that says, I know who you are. I know what you've done for me. Nothing can change that. No moment, no circumstance can change that. And that, that would inform our worship, not just tonight, but tomorrow, Tuesday when we're at work, whenever, Lord God, that when feelings would try to tell us one thing, we'd be able to remind ourselves of the fact of who you are. God, that that would fuel our faith and we would truly be able to walk with the shield of faith as we don't just worship for a moment, but move into deeper obedience and a closer walk with you. God, I pray that you would bless each person as we step out of this moment of worship, helping to move us forward in our walk with you. We'd walk closer with more wisdom, with more faith, with more discernment, Lord God. We'd remember that you're the God of miracles, that you can do all things, even when circumstances would seem to tell us otherwise, Lord God. God, we thank you. We praise you. And again, we thank you for the work of Jesus Christ. Everybody said, amen. Come on, again, if, you, if you, I don't know what you guys are seeking tonight, asking for tonight, but if you need prayer, I'm up here. Got other people that can pray for you. I'd love to pray for you. Otherwise, we'll see you next week. Take care.